Greetings, this is David Thompson coming to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, Canada. Are you thirsty for reality? Only reality can satisfy the inner core of your being. And if you are thirsty for reality, you have come to the right place. I'm only interested in speaking to you out of the Spirit of God those words that God wants you to receive as an individual and also to those corporately as the body of Christ. We are commanded to speak as the oracles of God as stated in 1 Peter 4.11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we're to seek to speak not our own words, but God's words out of the Spirit of God. So in this regards, I therefore also will seek to have God lead me to a particular chapter of the Bible each day, which is often found by the casting of lots before God. I then will meditate on this chapter for a half an hour and also take some brief notes and then immediately after preach from this passage as I'm about to do now to you. I trust the Spirit of God to give me the words to speak, not to prepare an outline. This is in order to bring forth and prepare people individually and corporately for their ultimate, everlasting, and ever-enlarging fulfillment for which they were created, and for which all creation exists, namely the marriage of the Almighty's one true God to his corporate bride that will conquer all corruption and go on forever and ever in an ever-increasing government of ever-enlarging expression of creative love. Today I will be reading from the theme passage, which is Luke chapter 19. And after reading from Luke chapter 19, I will briefly comment on Luke chapter 19 and then on the various chapters I have received in this last seven or less days in the last number of days from whatever time I had done the last message. So we'll begin by reading Luke chapter 19. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans. And he was rich, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable 
because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an astute man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage, and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a cold tide, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt. And they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, 
Master, rebuke thy disciples. He answered and said unto them, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Excuse me as I take a little bit of water. In this passage of scripture, there is a theme that comes out. And in particular also, a particular statement that stands out that knits the various passages of scripture that I have received this week together. And that statement is regarding Zacchaeus of whom Christ said, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. And before I go into these other scriptures, however the Holy Spirit leads today, I want to mention about the first 10 verses here in Luke 19. The word Zacchaeus means pure, pure ones. And yet when we look at Zacchaeus, outwardly, he did not seem to be someone that was pure. Rather, he was a publican. The publicans were those that were tax collectors. And he was the chief of the publicans, one of the chief tax collectors for the Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish nation with severe taxes. But Zacchaeus was a man of small stature, and he had a great desire and hunger to see Christ, to the point that he didn't care what the people thought. If he even climbed up in a tree, being a spectacle already because he was very wealthy as a tax collector and very reviled because of being one of those such people. To the point that the crowd generally concluded that he was a very sinful person 
to oppress the Jewish nation. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ comes to that tree, looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Today, salvation has come to your house. For I'm going to come and visit you, Zacchaeus. What is God saying about Zacchaeus to the body of Christ and to you as an individual? He is seen by Christ as a genuine son. Whoever is a son of Abraham is also a son of the one true and living God. This is clearly described in Galatians, where Paul des describes the blessing that comes through Abraham and that those that are truly birthed of the Spirit of God are, are indeed the sons of Abraham. And in this passage of Scripture, Zacchaeus is someone that never really supposed that Christ would even consider him. But he had a desperation and a hunger for God to the point that he did not care what people thought about him. What quenches a genuine hunger to seek God is when our identity is in something other than God, in the opinions of what others think of us. The description of what it means to be genuinely born of the Spirit, that is, to be a true son of Abraham, as mentioned here, is described in John chapter 3, which is one of the chapters that we also, I also received this week. And it is described elsewhere in John. I will go to John 3 later. And it says in John chapter 1, that those that are truly born of the Spirit are not born of the will of man, nor of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, they are not brought forth in their being and therefore in the motivation that comes out of their being because their identity that is a motiv motivating them is in the pride through their blood lineage or the pride of their own achievements or whatever else it might be not born of the will of man. In other words, I want to please these people whose will is so instigated into my life that I put my identity in their life more than in a relationship with God. Not born of blood. Oh, my parents believe this way. I was born through my parents. They are this way. I, my identity is in their opinion and how they feel about me. No. The evidence of genuine rebirth is when our identity is in God. In fact, the evidence of the genuine fear of God is 
that we do not have fear towards the opinions of others, the acceptance of others, or the desires of this life. That those are not the things that motivate us. The genuine fear of God is devoid of that being the main focus and motivating factor in one's life. Zacchaeus is a picture of someone that may outwardly appear impure to those that are merely self-righteous and religious whose lives have never entered into genuine rebirth. They're more interested, rested in the religious hierarchy and their acceptance by them. And their identity is more in their acceptance of whatever the, the particular people are they have wanted to find their identity and fulfillment in. The genuine fear of God does not lose its integrity for the bait of these things that would manipulate our lives and motivate us out of a relationship with God. Zacchaeus is a picture of those that genuinely care for God. They have not allowed their thirst for God to be quenched so that they have lost any motivation to seek him. I made the notes this way in these first 10 verses. Those that are truly the sons of Abraham are those that do not care what people think of them but rather have a fear of God that births a hunger that seeks God, even if they are misunderstood. They are also humble enough to acknowledge their faults in order to receive God's forgiveness. Notice that in this passage, Zacchaeus does that, and I'll continue with the commentary here. They may have been disadvantaged by circumstances in life, out of poverty, and even became materially rich because their identity was more in God than in the acceptance and identity from their friends in society. Notice what Christ says and what Zacchaeus says in this passage. He says in verse 8, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He wasn't lying to the Lord. He had a genuine fear of God. He had integrity in his life. He wasn't interested ultimately in the money. He was more concerned about what God thought about what he was doing with his money. He had a repentant heart because he probably did feel bad about being in such a position of oppression over his nation. And Christ saw that his heart was repentant. And that is why he showed his extension of grace, of, of forgiveness to him by saying, I will come and abide at your house. Yes, Zacchaeus 
didn't care what people thought. He had the fear of God that birthed a humility in him that allowed him to be motivated to the place of desperation and hunger to find God. As the word of God says, if you will seek me with all your, my heart, your heart, then you will find me or I will be found of you. And Zacchaeus found the Lord because he was hungry enough to go beyond the cares of people's opinions and acceptance or rejection of him. The word of God says to the pure, all things are pure. As I told you, the word Zacchaeus means pure, pure ones. And in that passage of scripture, where Paul says to the pure, all things are pure, he then goes on to say, but to those that are unbelieving and defiled, even those things that are pure are not pure. They have lost the ability to discern true purity for mere outward religious performance. At this point, I feel to do something I wasn't even planning to do, and that is I want to um, go to a particular thing I wrote recently in a book that I'm writing, and I just want to bring out a little bit in this particular book that I've been writing. Um, I will um, need to just briefly turn to it, open it up, shouldn't take long. And uh, we'll get into this book. And I want to point out something. Whoopsie daisy. In this book that I recently wrote. And I would start with... um, I would imagine partly through this place. I'm going to just read this. Some, some of this will begin to make you recognize certain things. What I'm describing in this paragraph I wrote here is basically that there is a lot more involved in the genuine fear of God, which involves a genuine turning from the heart. This is not some mere intellectual ascent. It is out of the genuine fear of God that comes genuine spiritual rebirth. And I want to just read some of this paragraph here to the audience. This is a book that is a very long book and has been in the making for a couple of years. And so it's, here's a little bit of it. God, which is in that constitution of being that can only be an ultimate moral perfection of love. Hold it here. That's not the beginning of the sentence. Um, hmm, this is very long. I can't read this all. I guess I will begin with... Uh, Offense towards God in the heart loses sight of the goodness being upheld by God's integrity of love that requires and brings severe consequences. 
This brings a denial of who God is out of offense in the heart to carve a distorted, idolatrous image of God that is in conformity to our distorted, fallen state of being and resultant lifestyle. This state of being is like a black hole in outer space that is always seeking to fill the void within that can only be satisfied by abiding in the loving presence of God. Therefrom issues choices contrary to God's love that affect and pull everything and every run around into the same self-destructive ways. Often this takes on very religious characteristics by implementing certain practices that justify and feed self-control in the heart in the place of God as the center. This is in the guise of performance with the intellectual justification that it pleases God and makes God as supreme in one's life. It is this kind of deception out of self-trust that loses sight of a spontaneous heart relationship with God, which admits liberty and goodness in place of mere robotic-like performance. This kind of self-deceiving justification often happens by forming in the heart an idolatrous image of God as highly moral, dictatorial, and demanding of us. God is viewed as holy, without the awareness of the ultimate wholeness and goodness that is held therein, so that there is failure to view God's holiness as so ultimate in trustworthiness that we cannot abide with trust in the requirement of performance within ourselves. This false perception issues out of a choice from the heart to not fear God which is a choice to not acknowledge God in constitution of being as ultimately trustworthy, to be the source and holder without corruption of ultimate power and life. In other words, the fear of God is a choice from the heart to recognize and thus receive what only can be ultimately trustworthy as indeed God, which is that constitution of being that only can be an ultimate moral perfection of love. Such constitution of being is not possible to be more ultimate in perfection, and anything less would not be ultimately trustworthy, and therefore would be less than what would constitute the one and only true Almighty God. The choice to enter into the genuine fear of God is a turning in heart recognition and reception of the only quality of being that could be constituted as indeed the very source and holder of ultimate unlimited power, authority, and life that is in goodness without corruption forever. More simply put, a choice from the heart to fear God is a choice to recognize God for the reality of who God is in order to indeed be almighty and as such the one and only true God as is self-evident from the inner compass of the heart that knows what points to ultimate good. This is only possible in an ultimate quality of being and constitution that alone would be able to be the source and container of unlimited power, authority, and life and goodness forever without corruption. The inner conscience knows this quality cannot be more and can be nothing less than an ultimate integrity of love that judges everything in the slightest that is contrary, and yet without violation can still transcend with such moral purity of love to be the source of providing assured forgiveness, grace, and destiny to the repentance. This is possible 
by this ultimate pure integrity of God's love that judges all that is contrary, being as such the incorruptible foundation from which his love can spring an ultimate creative expression without corruption. This transcendent creative springing forth of the holiness of God's being of love into being able to provide mercy and grace is evident by acknowledgement in Scripture from the very beginning of God alone being the only ultimate source with power to forgive. This power of God to forgive sins can only be possible by God always having had in the constitution of his being the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice and to have in reality become it even before the world was created. The reason being that what is constitution and thus capacity of being in God is also the very source and expression of reality that can transcend time and space. Therefore, God in full expression of his being into time and space in government, which is in his only son, in reality became a perfect atoning sacrifice in this world as verified in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from corruption and death. This is why it says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. From before the world was created, it was as good a reality that Christ was already slain. Now, I know that's probably hard for anyone to understand just reading a book that has such deep um, thought in it. But basically what I'm saying in this passage is that the genuine fear of God recognizes two ultimate aspects of the being of God's love. It recognizes the absolute integrity of God's love to judge the slightest that is contrary, which is the holiness of God. And it recognizes it as such as ultimately trustworthy and good. It is when one focuses on the consequences of God's holiness in all the suffering around them and in their own lives because of the consequences of going against his holiness, that they begin to have a distorted perception of God. And so I go on and I say such offense also is internalized in an independence of withdrawal from God that begins by perceiving God as some kind of enigma. This then leads to feeding this alienating offense with a less than ultimate trustworthy perception of God that is such as distorted and not God, but idolatrous. In turn, this can lead over time to the belief in many gods such as that God is an alien being from outer space. Underlying such beliefs is the justification of one's own temporal gratifications, such as sexual immorality or other pleasures, that can also involve the performance in various ritual practices of self-denial before this God to justify it. This is the idolatrous, monotheistic God. It is very clear that devotion Devolution into polytheism stems from this subtle alienating offense that begins to view God in a more agnostic way, such as an enigma. One view is that God is only so holy, only so holy he cannot be directly communicated with and therefore requires human entities to represent God that are to be worshipped and then in turn communicate on one's behalf to God. 
This devolution into polytheism is also clearly evident in the many layered hills formed in buried cities through the eons of time, which towards the lowest layers of the earliest times are monotheistic with superior math and culture. History and archaeology also reveal that idolatrous' practice of supremely worshipping many gods often had the belief in one distant, vague, supreme god as the source or creator of the many gods that was rarely worshipped. And this one distant god was rarely worshipped or acknowledged. In fact, to unite the many divisions and wars caused by various tribes worshipping many gods, it should come as no surprise that there can be a kind of revival that unites and cooperates all these idolatrous gods back into the worship towards one distant, idolatrous, distorted image of one God. Historical writings establish beyond doubt that such is the case with the Arabs centuries before the time of Muhammad. Then they had the Kaaba with 360 idols and yet still acknowledged a chief God by the name of Allah that was not their main focus of worship, but very distant. And there are all the references in history to that. Now, that's a lot of explanation, but the focus here in this passage and in my book and often what I share is on the genuine fear of God that God wants to restore to the body of Christ in these last days. God is wanting to call his people into a relationship with him where there is genuine purity that we look at because we've come into a pure relationship with God, where we do not rebel against the consequences of God's holiness, but recognize that it is out of God's holiness that unlimited life that is ever expanding, enlarging, and creative expressions of love is contained. In other words, goodness without corruption that is ever enlarging and expanding. It is out of the holiness of God that comes wholeness, therefore. That is that quality that can contain life with no corruption, for the slightest corruption brings the lack of wholeness and torment. And it is out of the wholeness that issues from the holiness of God that springs forth the beauty of God himself. So that King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The tendency in the human heart is to get into the spin of this world like electrons spinning around the nucleus of an atom and allow that spin to become so strong that it forms a hard shell around our heart. And the only thing that can break that hard shell is to come into the genuine fear of God, which has two aspects to it. The, as it were, focus on the ultimate negative from which springs the ultimate positive. This is just for sake of illustration that I'm saying this. We know that the whole universe is created with negatives and positives. All the molecules and everything in our body functions by negatives and positives, all the blood cells and so on. But the ultimate negative and positive is the very source of reality, the I am that I am, Yahweh, Elohim, the Almighty's One, the one true God. 
And that ultimate negative is seen in the integrity of his love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love, from which is the foundation and the symbol of that negative symbol which represents foundation and cutting off of all that is not holy, for God will never condone the slightest that is contrary to his love. But from that foundation springs the ultimate positive, which is that God's being has been constituted from the eternal past with such a purity of love that he has the capacity to, in his being to become a perfect atoning sacrifice so that God humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, if you can even possibly grasp the reality of how great this love is, so that he could absorb the judgment of the sins of all creation that would turn to him out of their own free will and repent of their temptations that they have fallen to in rebellion against God. And God has provided his very self and his son And I will briefly say to those that are new and do not understand that we only believe in one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But there is plurality in God. For God to be almighty, he must be in personage in the three ultimate dimensions of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. Beyond time and space, he is the originator, the one that sees the end from the beginning, known as the Father, and that is the very definition of Father. Father has experience through time. Father is the originator. God in government is in personage beyond time, in conscious intelligence, because, and if he wasn't, he would not be God. He'd be less than God. God is fully expressed into his creation in personage and in conscious intelligence. And if he was not, he would not be God, for he would not be able to rule within the time and space realm. God is in conscious intelligence and personage and omnipresence and omniscience in attachment to every particle of existence he has made. He fills all space and all things. And as such, he is called Elohim, which means the Almighty's one. And what I am describing here is that when we view the very being of God in his holiness, that ultimate negative, and recognize the goodness behind it, rather than being offended at the consequences, and come to that place of crying out, and recognizing that he can provide such mercy. The very constitution of its being had this capacity before the world was created, and because he is God, what is in the constitution of his being is reality to the degree that it is as if it already happened, which is why it says that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was slain before the creation of the world because that reality was already in the being of the Almighty's One, Yahweh. The I am that I am. Ahidya, Asher, Ahidya in Hebrew. And 
here in this passage in Luke. God is calling his people to let go of the religiosity that would make them judgmental of one another so that they are divided and denominational, so that they cannot have genuine reverence towards others because they've never entered into a genuine reverence with God. Because they've never maybe genuinely been born again. Maybe they've gone forward even and, and said the sinner's prayer, but it's been a mere intellectual ascent because they wanted to be part of a group because they didn't know how to find identity. Maybe their identity is merely in that. The security and the fulfillment in the social benefits of commonality around particular belief, which can even be in a Christian church that believes and experiences multitudes coming into genuine birth, rebirth. As we go on in this passage in Luke chapter 19, there is a continuation of what is mentioned in those first 10 verses that I've just shared with. In verses 11 to 27, we have the Lord describing a kingdom that he was the Lord over. And there were those that didn't want the one that was the Lord over this kingdom to be their ruler. But then there were those that were actually the servants of this ruler and had reverence and respect unto him. And there was one of those servants that failed to be responsible with the life and the talents that God gave this person. And this is clearly described in verse, beginning in verse 19 or verse 20. And it says, another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds, for I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Now, in this particular passage, I make again some brief comment, and I just want to read that first. It is the counterfeit fear of God. There is a counterfeit fear of God. There are people that can teach you about fearing God, but it's counterfeit. That acknowledges the severity of God apart from the kindness and goodness of God. 
that brings focus on the consciousness. This brings focus. This kind of counterfeit, counterfeit fear brings consciousness of lost self. It's a focus. A wrong focus on God because it's focusing on the severity of God without recognizing the goodness of God within the severity of God's judgment. And this wrong focus brings a consciousness of loss to self in place of ultimate completeness in God. So that the motivation is to live unto self above God and ignore the righteousness of the true severity of God. The result is everlasting loss instead of everlasting reward. Word of God says in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. What is fear? The most accurate definition of fear that I know of is a consciousness of loss to self that causes uptightness, tension. It is being alive onto the temporal things of this world. Identity in a religious hierarchy or group. Loving those created things above a relationship with God, and yet somehow justifying them as acceptable through religious performance towards God in the place of a genuine heart relationship. Because of developing an image of God that is demanding, demanding of submission, if you perform certain things, and is lost sight of the beauty behind God's holiness. It is perfect love that casts out fear. Because it is identity and relationship to God who is love that can only bring genuine completeness in our soul. Word of God says that faith works by love. Faith is birthed by the perception of who God is, which is the perception of God who is love. It is the perception of who God in reality is, which we know is love. And I've already described what love is. Very briefly, I could go into great depth. I've hardly touched on it. But God's love has an integrity that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love, and yet therefrom springs forth without violation of this integrity with the power to provide mercy, forgiveness, assured mercy, forgiveness, and destiny to the repentant. God's being is that ultimate negative and positive, which is 
holiness and mercy or in the New Testament described as truth and grace. Remember I was talking about the hard shell that reforms around the heart like electrons spinning around a nucleus of an atom forming a hard shell. It is when there is the focus of receptivity on the holiness of God and the goodness behind that, that there is then the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy, which is the positive aspect of his love, so to speak, or the plus representing the cross. And in the recognition of God's mercy, which can only come out of the genuine fear of God, to us personally. That is a mercy to us personally. When we really see the greatness of God's mercy to us personally, then we see the greatness of his love. Then there is the reception of his love. There is the deep turning from the heart. This is all out of the fear of God. The fear of God is that choice to rightly recognize God for the reality of who he is in his being in these two aspects of holiness and mercy to us personally. And out of that, there comes forth the breaking of that shell. Then there is a receptivity to that ultimate negative and positive that releases the breaking of the shell of the hardness of our heart and independence from God so that the flow of life comes within our being of the Spirit of God to dwell with our spirit. And it is like the reaching of a clenched fist, opening up and surrender onto the recognition of who God is and into which comes the Spirit of God to dwell. So it's like one open hand, our spirit and soul opening up like a blossom and another open hand coming against that hand, forming two hands of prayer, which can also symbolize a seed, the seed of the new divine nature, which is described in 1 John, which says, that once who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is the new divine nature that involves our spirit in open trust and recognition of who God is that allows the spirit of God out of that breaking of that shell of pride through that recognition to allow the Spirit of God to dwell with our spirit so that that hand cannot close. It is in a state of selfless trust, which is the tra which is a new divine nature where the desires have been changed from identity in the things of this world into ultimate desire in relationship with God so that we are motivated no longer to be by the things of this world, but as it were, we are dead under the things in this world. And in this passage, this servant fell short. He refused to recognize the goodness of God. There was alienation in his heart and offense that drove him to a state of fear where his motivations were only for his own life. He was not conscious of any relationship with God. He was only concerned about his own life. And so he buried all his time and energy into temporal fulfillments, 
and desires that he pursued rather than into spending time seeking God. And so, here again, we have a very clear picture that Christ is bringing forth out of what we saw in Zacchaeus. What brings a purity in our hearts is the recognition and the abiding in that recognition of who God is, which is what Paul described as faith which works by love. It says, therefore, we are a new creature. No, that's not the exact wording. It says it this way. Uh, as a new creation, the new creation is faith which works by love. It's, I forgot the way the exact verse says it, but it's basically saying this, that our new divine nature involves this relationship of faith working by love. And it is what I just described. It is the recognition of God's love that causes faith to be birthed in a new divine nature, and it is in the same way that it grows. For it says in the word of God, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And so it is out of that that we grow. It says in the word of God that we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. It is through prayer in the Spirit of God that there is this relationship of worship that develops where there's reciprocation through a process of faith working by love. And this is birthed out of the fear of God, which is a choice of true turning from the depths of our heart to continue to seek to recognize God in the beauty of who God is in his holiness, and in his mercy that springs therefrom. And this is the reality of God's being that was before the world was created, to the point that it was, as, it was reality that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And this is why that this gospel that I am preaching on the fear of God has been preached from the very beginning of the time of Adam and Eve, and that is that there is one God and that he is the source of forgiveness, that he has provided a way of assured mercy. I don't have time to go into the details of all of this, but it is very clear that Christ expected Nicodemus to know what it meant to be born again of the Spirit before he had even accomplished his atoning work on the cross and that he as a teacher should have known these things. And the fact is that people were genuinely born of the Spirit of God. From the time of Adam and Eve till now, there was always a remnant. Oh, I know there's all the various scriptures, and I just make a brief side commentary on that to answer those questions. Well, what about the fact that it says in the Old Testament that there'll come a time when God will make a new covenant with the nation of Israel? What about the fact that they had to enter the Holy of Holies through the high priest in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's all true. But here's the difference. The high priest in the Old Testament was representing the nation as a whole coming before God. 
It was evident that individuals had an intimate relationship that was reciprocative and deep fellowship with God from the very beginning. Enoch walked with God and he was not. In the camp of Moses, they prophesied and they were told to shut up because there were too many people that were still religious. And Moses says, don't tell them to shut up. I wish that all Israel would enter into a spirit of prophecy like them, into a relationship with worship with God where they would prophesy like they did. Yes, the only difference between that time and now is that now, because Christ has died on the cross, our soul and spirit can be cleansed so that God does not only dwell with us, but indwells us. But he still dwelt with their soul and spirit, and their soul and spirit still could open up into a state of new birth by his dwelling with them. Now it's indwelling. Now we have access into the very throne of God through prayer because God can indwell our soul and spirit and we have access in our soul and spirit to God because it is pure, purified. But there was always the genuine rebirth. Now, we go on in this passage of scripture here and we again have another thing that Christ describes in verses 28 to 44. It's not so much a description here, it is an event that happens. He's entering Jerusalem. And as he enters Jerusalem, they're told to get a colt. And they're told to just take it like they're stealing something. I mean, they don't even know these people and they're supposed to go up to this house. It's like going to someone's house and saying, and that has a really nice car and just hopping in and taking it. And the people are standing out there and they say, what are you doing taking our car? Oh, that talk about misunderstanding here. Here is another illustration where when God commands us to do something, it can go completely against the natural things that we'd want to do because who wants to be rejected and misunderstood by people? Again, it is a test of whether we are going to obey God. Is our, are we alive unto this world and its influences upon our life to the point that we freeze when God tells us to do something? The challenge is where our identity really lies. Is it in the world? Can it freeze us from doing his will? No. When God speaks, if we have ears to hear, we will hear. And we will do what he tells us to do, in there, and there won't be any uptightness. We'll have an assured rest and persuasion in who God is, and God will take care of of the circumstances as he did with this cult, because when they went to get this cult, they let them have it, even though they questioned them, which might have really caused some concern for the first few seconds in their minds. And so we have Christ entering Jerusalem, 
And he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, not as some pompous king with all kinds of soldiers coming around him with power, demonstrating power. Rather, he comes in humility and there is praise and worship, but it offends those that are religious and proud out of self-righteousness to the point that they tell Christ to tell them to quit doing it. And Christ says, even if they were forced to stop, the stones would cry out and praise unto me at this point because it was a foretype of a greater entrance when Christ will return to Jerusalem when they will know the time of their visitation. But this time they did not know the time of God's visitation. And so Christ weeps over Jerusalem because they're like the servant that buried his talent in the ground. They have lost the genuine fear of God and replaced it with teachings that are a counterfeit fear of God that emphasizes mere ritualistic performance as being more important than the circumcision of the heart and a genuine relationship of fellowship with God. So that all they have is a mere ritualistic show without the reality of the presence of God. And these things subtly can creep into our lives even after we have entered into a genuine relationship with God. We have the example of the church of Ephesus that lost their first love. We have the example of the church of Laodicea that lost a love relationship with God and justified material things as being acquainted, or acquainted with godliness. It says that those that equate material gain with godliness, we are to turn away from such, that would teach such false things that I am rich spiritually rich because God is prospering me materially. And that's where the focus is and the emphasis is instead of in a heart relationship with God. And so Christ weeps over Jerusalem because he knows the severe judgments that are coming to her because of the hardness and the alienation from a relationship with him, that it is necessary that such sufferings and trials come that break and shatter the hardness so that people become desperate to turn to the truth. And so those that seek to save their lives lose it. Those that are willing to lose their identity in this world out of the fear of God find their life. For the hunger has motivated them for God. They have not allowed the things of this world to quench their hunger for God. The secret of entering in to the genuine fear of God is to feed it. Because in the feeding of the genuine fear of God, which involves a reciprocation of faith by love, faith working by love, that brings forth a greater and greater hunger for God. 
what quenches our hunger for God is feeding identity in the opposite. In this day and age, it is the gods of amusement and pleasure that plague much of the church of the modern world. And yet the word of God is clear that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness as mentioned in Ezekiel. How can we allow sports, watching sports and other things to take up so much of our time that we hardly pray, that we hardly know an intimate abiding relationship with God, so that we are desensitized and drunken by these things spiritually, so that our hearts are hard, and because there is hardness, because there is a shell that is formed in our heart, That hardness has caused adultery from God into the lumps of the world that are often justified by our religious activity. As a result, there is abundance of divorce in many of the most so-called spiritual charismatic churches because of hardness of heart. Because these idols are in the body of Christ and God is calling his people to repent of these things in this hour before his judgment comes. That we may be found with those that abide the day of his wrath by being hid as he passes over again in another Passover as described in Isaiah. When the Lord shall arise to judge the inhabitants of the earth for in their iniquity. He describes, I believe in Isaiah, around 26 or 25 towards the end. He says that he will have his people hide in that day and he will pass over them and they will not receive that judgment. God is calling his bride to come forth in purity out of all those things that never satisfied in the first place, into a wholeness, into a purity, where divorce is conquered in the church from God and from husband and wife relationships. When we really have a purity in our heart, we see past the hardness of others. And even when they offend us due to their hardness, we come to them out of the love that is in our heart through our relationship with God. And we, as it were, wash their feet with the word of God and tell them our faults, even though they are more than in the wrong. And through washing their feet, we melt the hardness in their hearts and husbands and wives are reconciled. And that is what happened. A lady came to me and t told me that she was making plans to divorce her husband. And then God challenged her to wash her husband's feet with the towel in the washroom. And she kept refusing, but finally decided she would humble herself and do it. And when she did, her husband said, no, no. And he broke down in tears and she broke down in tears. And the harness in their heart was broken. And they were reconciled and their marriage has been solid now for when she told me 25 years, God is calling us as his people to have such a purity in our hearts of love for him that we can see past the hardness of others, the goodness that is in their heart. Just like 
keep like Christ saw past all the things in Zacchaeus that others judged and drew out of him that which was good in his heart so that there was repentance in his heart. And Christ knew he could say, I can come to your house, I've forgiven you. I entered to abide in your life, to dwell in your heart because you were willing to go all the way to find me and didn't care what people thought. My, I didn't realize I've been preaching for so long. I haven't got to the other passages of Scripture which all line up with this Scripture. All I can do now, because of lack of time, is briefly mention them. The theme passage last week was also on Peter's conclusion that whoever fears God is accepted of him. That's because in the fear of God is genuine rebirth. And I also got Acts 11 this week that indicates that. Also in Psalm 147, it emphasizes that the Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. That's in verse 11 of Psalms 147. Then on Monday, I received John chapter 3, which is all about being born of the Spirit. And there's a powerful message in this passage, which I cannot go into for time. So I will pass over that. I really love what I received in Philippians 4. It really speaks of the very thing that I'm speaking about in this passage is scripture. In the first three verses of Philippians 4, I make this comment. A true servant leader such as a genuine apostle has and expresses a deep love for the local congregation and specific individuals that they know, to the point that they are called my joy and crown. There is a love with burden for their destiny in heaven to be fulfilled in the acknowledging of their names in the book of life and that they seek to be this, of this. And there's an emphasis on the importance of unity. There's a continual emphasis in this particular passage in Philippians on rejoicing in the Lord. We need to be continually learn to feed into our rejoicing in the Lord, knowing that the Lord is our true source of joy and being, aware that he is coming soon. In this way, we will not be abiding in the things of this world so that we become anxious, but rather in everything of concern, we'll bring it before the Lord with thankfulness and prayer. This will allow God's peace, which goes beyond our understanding of why things are the way they are, to keep our soul and mind, soul, mind, and heart abiding in God. That's verses 4 to 7. God's peace is with us and increases in our lives when we dwell with our heart and mind on those things that are good, pure, and of eternal worth unto God. And when we look to those who are an example and inspiration to us to follow Christ. Verses 8 to 9. Verses 10 to 23, we need to know how to abide in God with peace and joy equally when we suffer need, as also when we abound with fulfillment in natural things of this world. Sometimes our need is that we have trials of need in order for God to supply our needs according to his riches and glory. 
We abide in God by faith and confidence in God in us to enable us to do all things through Christ. And then the only other things I will touch on here to tie all of these things together is that I received Ecclesiastes 12 where it says that the whole conclusion of the matter is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. And I made, But the whole chapter is basically saying this, we're to remember God as the center of our life and of all things, especially while we are still young, and have vitality to serve him and enjoy what he has created. There's no purpose or meaning to our lives apart from this. And this is summed up with ultimate meaning and purpose to our life in one thing. It is to fear God and keep his commandments because our lives will be brought before God for judgment as to whether we have been good or bad. Good in the sense that it's truly been in our heart that we've been reciprocative of God who is good and thus have done those things out of a pure motive of good in our hearts. It is the fear of God that causes us to be wise so that our lives are built through time like the assembly of a great building. And God is building us together as a building of living stones, as a corporate bride that he can inhabit. That is his ultimate purpose. And amazingly, after I received that in Ecclesiastes, the next day I received Ephesians 3, which was talking about God's eternal purpose for us, that we become part of his corporate bride, that reveals the unity of the fellowship with God and each other, that brings ultimate fulfillment, meaning and good, that is everlasting and enlarging. This is according to the unity of fellowship and the oneness of the triunity of the one true God in the Father and Son and in the Holy Spirit. Christ prayed that as he was one with the Father, we should be one with one another. And the secret of that oneness in the triunity of the one true God is the fear of God, because it says in Isaiah 33, around verse 5 and 6, concerning the Messiah, the fear of God is his treasure, because it is the secret to abiding oneness, even in God himself. So that Christ prayed, as the Father and me are one, so I pray that you would be one in me and with one another to enter this ultimate purpose and destiny individually and corporately. It is important that we are strengthened with might in our inner being by the indwelling of God's Spirit through the building up of our faith, and that I have clearly described in Luke 19. This reciprocative relationship that is birthed out of the fear of God through the reciprocation of faith working by love by the revelation of the love of God that makes us aware of our completeness being in God and not in this world, so that we do not become uptight, but we are always rejoicing in who God is through every circumstance. That verse that says, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God, may it become a reality in your life. That your life, is dead to this world so that it can be hid with God in Christ, the place of intimacy where we abide in the secret place of the Most High so that the Almighty dwells over us and, sh and envelops us with his presence so that we can bring forth his glory in our life so that we can usher him back into 
our community, just as he was ushered on the donkey with showing forth his praise, may we be those that stand before him and bring him forth with praise because our lives are a praise, because they radiate his presence and glory out of a life of worship that is burst out of the fear of God. So that he will come back and find us a house of prayer, not a house of merchandise, but a house of prayer. In Luke 19, he had to take a scourge and whip the people out of the house of prayer because they had made it a house of merchandise. May we be those that repent and come back to the genuine fear of God, which reverences God because they recognize and love God. And when you really love someone, you treat them as precious, not as common. You're not insensitive. You're sensitive to whose presence you're in. You're sensitive to hearing his voice. And so I end this message and ask for you to support me in prayer and in every other way so that I can have all the time to focus on the work that he has called me to bring to the body of Christ, which is the restoration back to the bride church, being ready for his coming, which requires a returning to the genuine fear of God and to the fulfillment of the message mentioned in Revelations chapter 14. I saw another angel having the everlasting gospel to preach, saying, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. I'm not the only one. There are many others that God is raising up. That angel represents the messengers of the last days, and I am one of them, to declare a return to the fear of God, to genuine worship in spirit and truth, to genuine unity, to repentance from the divisions of denominationalism, of control that stop the body of Christ from coming forth in the gifts of the Spirit out of true worship. Oh, I wish I could preach longer. This message is now the longest message I've preached. It's over an hour and a half. I forbear to continue. I call the body of Christ to start their meetings on their faces before God, to make the church service itself a prayer meeting, to start out of worship and prayer, and out of that, go into pure worship, and out of that, let the gifts of the spirits function, Spirit of God function. God bless you all. Look forward to sharing again.